This is Visceral Podcast, and I'm your host, Michelle Roseborough. Today, we're speaking to Ferial Adam to discuss, among other things, opportunities for young women interested in playing a role in studying and protecting the environment and climate change. I look back at my years as an activist in the 80s, and you need a group of five people to find something that you want to fight for. So you start with little groups chatting about it. You don't change the world overnight. Right. You do little steps, and you find that area that you are passionate about. Environmental activism. Activists are often in the firing line of some of the most powerful companies looking to protect their profits versus their long-term environmental impact. We touch on a range of topics, particularly how environmental change can be considered a gender issue and can be looked at through a gendered lens. Ferial explains how critical climate change is on the African continent and ways we can educate ourselves and protect our environment and our resources. Ferial has been at the front line of climate change campaigns across Africa and speaks passionately about her commitment to our environment. Hope you enjoy the interview. Visceral Podcast, African Women Innovate. So yeah, let's get right into it. You are a climate change and energy campaigner and activist. Um, Talk to me as if I'm a five-year-old child. Right. <laughs> and tell me tell me a little bit about what you do. And then I'm going to ask you to tell me a little bit more about yourself and, and what you specialize in and what was the catalyst for your professional career in environmental activism. Okay, so I'm going to start with the first question. Sure, right? go ahead. I mean, I think that when you look at uh, climate change and energy, um, it's it sounds like a very, like, spy-in-the-sky um, often when we say climate change, people look at us like very blank. So before I actually talk about that, I want to say that part of what I do is, is environmental justice. The term, you know, came from the U.S. in the 80s, where we had people of color and people of basically poorer people who were placed uh, next to polluting industries. And we have the same thing happening in South Africa. So fighting environmental justice has linked to the issues of climate change and energy. Now, in South Africa, we predominantly produce our electricity through the use of coal. So 92% of our electricity comes from coal. And the pollution from that, from coal power stations, has been seen as one of the key things that's contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. And that's where the link is to climate change. That we as a country, globally, it has been agreed that we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And for South Africans, the best way for us to do it is to look at the coal emissions, the emissions from coal power stations. And come up with alternatives. Come up with alternatives, but also um, not only look at it in an environmental perspective, Mm -hmm. but look at it in an environmental justice perspective. So while some people, you know, we live in climate change. You've never seen floods like we've seen Mm -hmm. now. You never see crazy rain like we've seen now but also 
the people living right next to those coal-fired power stations have additional issues. So the kids have a lot of asthma, there's a lot of respiratory diseases, there's cancers, you know, so those are the kind of things that we like, wait a second, we've got to also look at the people. And that's what, what we do as environmental justice activists. And what was the catalyst for you getting into your professional career? I mean, it's... Yeah, like you say, when you when you talk about environmental justice or climate change, it is this kind of, you know, random idea, like you kind of have an idea around it. But but for you personally, did you have some mentor or something to tell you this is an option or this is this is where you need to go? What was the catalyst? So it is it's very funny because um you know, I grew up in the eighties. I'm showing my age. But don't worry. <laughs> I grew up in the eighties at a time where we were fighting the apartheid government and even then as young women you kind of knew you wanted to study to better yourselves that that was very clear in our head that we needed education to get out of where we were but then there were very limited career options for us firstly as black people and then as women right so um The one area, funny enough, Mm. that we could definitely find a job was science. So if you were good in maths and science, you were kind of like, that's the area you need to push into into that area because you need to work on maths and science. And that's where you'll definitely get a job. But I didn't do the right maths and science. I didn't do the medicine or dentistry. I did geology. Okay. (laughs) Right? So when you do geology, a lot of it is about mining. Yes. And rehabilitating the mines. And I thought, I can't do that because it's like trying to cover the damage with the carpet and just sweep it Mm. under and hope it's okay and so that's where my questioning started and I thought I can't I can't be someone that's gonna allow the minds to get away with these things and that's when my awareness of environmental justice became much stronger so we reached 94 we had democracy but there were all these people who were still living next to these polluted industries and I thought no and I was still, you know, 94, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, right. really happy with <laughs> Eager the to, change yes, and want to and, be part of it. Right. But, and my focus then moved from fighting the nationalist government to looking at how do we keep corporations accountable for the pollutions that they they, they uh, emitting. Right, right. And that's does that make sense? That's how it is. That's no, I mean, I mean, it makes complete sense to me. But I, I, I mean, I like that catalyst that it is coming from something that was built around you know, one, that one option to go into geology. And I'm sure were you just one of like two women in the course? Yes, Yes. it was horrible. I mean, (laughs) I can give you stories of a lecturer coming from De Beers to talk about mining. And in between his slides, at that time, Uh I'm showing my age again, he had pictures of naked women from whatever, Scope magazine, I, I don't know what it was called, but he had naked women while you're looking at slides on mining. Wow. And there were two women. I went to complain and I was told, well, if you're going to be a geologist, you need to learn to to deal deal with with it. it. Yeah. So, so, yeah, things haven't changed that much. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Um, But you're currently pursuing your PhD. I am. In in what? So I I did a lot of nuclear stuff. Okay. I did a lot of... um, I've been to Fukushima with Greenpeace. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a course with in, in the Netherlands on, on nuclear science. But I chose to do my PhD on something very, very different. 
Um, I'm looking at the issue of citizen science, and I think it links it links to what you're trying to do, and citizen science and environmental justice. But I'm also changing from my focus on energy to water. Okay. And the reason I'm looking at citizen science is because what I'm saying is that science, and, and maybe this is relevant to you from the readings I've seen, science, that when it started out, was by ordinary people. Right. And we always get told of, you know, Faraday and all these kind of European scientists. But science didn't start just there. You've got um, Arabic astronomers. You've got Indian physicists. You've got Japanese physicists. Where they use science to challenge the societies within which they lived. So, for example, the Indian scientists of Bose and Saha used science to challenge not only uh, the fatalistic view of Hinduism, but also to challenge colonialism. And we don't hear about that. No, we don't. And then, for example, the Arab um, scientists as well and astronomers were also using it to challenge the stereotypes of Islamic control, political control. The Japanese scientists used science to challenge the feudal system. They weren't called scientists. They were looking at the world around them right. and how to make a difference. And, and these became renowned scientists in those in worlds. Those, right. right? Um, and that's what I'm trying to say is that in the 19th century, science became institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And it separated science from the people. And that is why it's so hard to get people in science. So it's almost like that, that public engagement isn't... Now it's more of this elitist kind of exactly. approach. Yes, but getting scientists yes. to come down and say, look, at some stage you're going to have to engage with the public and yes. the public is going to need to understand exactly. what those issues That's are. That's it. That's my PhD. So I'm looking at and how do we and can we then, through educating or through creating a science awareness with communities and community activists, then empower them to fight for the environmental justice right. that they need. I feel like in today's world, environmentalists are, you know, under a lot of pressure and and stress and violence at times. Yes. Yeah. And in today's political climate and and, and where you have climate change deniers and and, and the people that support them as well. um, To some people, the the idea of advocating for the protection of the environment is is vague. Mm. It's obscure. So so environmental activists are actually on the firing line of some of the most powerful companies looking to protect their profits versus minimizing their long-term environmental impact. So I just want to know, in what ways have we on the continent maybe undermined the importance of climate change and climate change issues? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, where has Africa played a role in that? I think the problem is in defining climate change. Mm -hmm. And for as long as we define it as a science issue and is a climate change issue rather than a climate justice issue, then I think we are never going to be able to bridge that gap. And we're always going to have people saying, but hang on, we don't have food. Right. We've got more important issues to worry about. Exactly. We don't have, you know, we, we have diseases, we have this, we have that. And how do you then counter that when, right. when there's all of that going on? I've been living this whole... Um, concept of, of sustainable development and climate change through from the 90s to now and it was so hard in the beginning to mm-hmm. talk about climate change because people were like I'm sorry I got, I got bread and butter issues yes. right yes. 
now it's amazing even with the climate deniers when you start talking about climate change people are like i have bread and butter issues but now i see the linkage right because if if this continues i mean if we look at kenya for example mm. the northwest of kenya is going through such a drought it will never recover from that drought what we also seeing now is resource wars right so people fighting over the little bit of water in that area it's fighting Africa. over there's like a drought every single year for the past three years exactly. <laughs> people are fighting for herding space right so then it becomes very real the problem though mm. right is that there was a phrase that came out in the early 90s that said we don't need climate change we need system change because as long as we have the particular economic system mm. it's going to feed poverty right and it's going to create a bigger divide mm. and the governments that are supposed to be worrying about us are more worried about oh let's see who we can get to put up a big fiery industry i'm not against work and i'm not against industry but we need to be a little bit responsible mm. and what we forget is that same dirty industry will not go put itself in sweden they'll get kicked out immediately you know so if so if we all say enough is enough they have to clean up their act and we still have a long way because i think governments are still well, look at our government right. the nuclear deal for example <laughs> I know. you know everything everybody and all the logic in the world is saying this is not this a good is not idea. A good idea for x y and z reasons it's like a whole list it's of a things. whole list of things it's the economics it's right. the environmental issues right. they're going to push the issue of jobs i can tell you no. there's no job creation there in, and the russians are going to bring exactly. in their own people to exactly. work on the, exactly. the nuclear and i'm like versus looking at say renewable energy options exactly i mean i think for for us we must be careful right i do support renewable energy right. but it also if it works in the same system it's not going to provide the same kind yes, of outcomes that exactly. we're expecting well look tell me a little bit about say africa and, and I, i think that you yeah your experience has been mainly in south africa but maybe you have some sense of africa's environmental movement in the past prior to say like in the 70s you know ah, before the okay. 80s I, i i need to know has there been a legacy i guess on the african continent of preservation conservation Okay, so there has so it's very interesting because it has a long history of different things. Okay. So I don't know I'm going to be all over the place. So no, I'm it's sorry. Fine. The first thing is the aspect of conservation mm-hmm. was seen as a very colonial invention. Okay. So it, it came about to have these protected lands for these animals to allow for hunters and so very colonial you know the white settlers to go and have their fun and look at the, it was not an inclusive process so a lot of people were moved from their lands to create these conservation parks and the, across africa mm-hmm. right so that's the one thing also at that particular time when people talked about environmental issues they didn't talk about people it was a very green issue it was like we need to save the whales and we need to save and i'm and i'm not against all of right. that but you need to link it and if you don't link it to people like don't come to me i live down here i never see whales right. and tell me we need It's to save the whales <laughs> right um so environmentalists are guilty of that of not creating the linkages to people for them for people to understand why the environment is important and then you had this issue of it became environmentalists were this 
um, middle class concern. Okay. Right. And when we talk about en environmental justice came out late in the 80s okay. and then the early 90s in South Africa. So there was that shift eventually yes. in South Africa. Well, I would say a little bit more than South okay. Africa. Okay. You know, where, so for example, if we take Nigeria mm -hmm. and if we look at what Shell did in Nigeria, the Ogoni land, the, the links were so strong in terms of the oil being spilled on Ogoni land. I mean, it's, it's, it's a dead land. It's like it's beyond dead. It's like a, it's, it's almost like hell on earth. Really? You know, and the, it's when the people pushed back right. that the linkages were then made with environmental organizations. Very interesting. So when I was growing up in the 80s, we heard of Greenpeace. We heard of, you know, all these other environmental organizations. But it was like... I'm so sorry, far guys. removed. It was very far removed. It was like, I'm sorry, we've got we've got to fight the national government. Exactly. You're telling me about the whales. Right. And the other problem was those environmental organizations never made any statements about the political issues. Right. So they were separated. And exclusive. Exactly. You know? yeah, so. So, it, so it was very difficult to, to, to maneuver around that time, even for environmental activists. I wasn't an environmentalist in the 80s. I was an activist. Right. I I think the environmentalism came from varsity right. and later. So the shift in the way people on the continent are understanding the implications of climate change, what, you know, what do you think has sparked that? Has it been because they're, you know, in situations where, you know, the people are pushing back and there is some kind of environmental justice that, that occurs, is that bringing about a greater shift in people saying, okay, look, the environment is far more important and how we interact with it is far more important. Do you think that that has been and what has influenced people? It's basic survival and livelihoods. Right. So if we look at if we look at Kenya, mm -hmm. right? I mentioned it. The drought has caused people to move from their homes where they've grown up. It was their ancestry land. They've had to move because there's nothing there. Right. Right. You there's, can't grow anything. You can't grow you anything. Can't, you, you can't live off of anything. And then on the border with Ethiopia, yeah. they're fighting over the fish resources. I mean, I, I, I went there and there was a man with his fish and a rifle. And I'm like, why are you carrying a rifle when you're fishing? Because you, everyone has this perspective of fisher people right. being the most gentle. No, right. why do you need a rifle? Oh, man. <laughs> and he said, because someone's going to try and steal my fish. And I got this fish and so I need to feed my family. So I will protect it. No, it is. So that's an example, right? We spoke to women whose, there was the matriarch of the family, then she had these granddaughters and she had her daughters and her sons, two wives, the two sons' wives. All the men were killed because when they went off to look after the cattle, people are coming, and this is internally in Kenya, people are attacking them for their sheep, for their cattle, and that's what's going on. And so you have this family of no men because they've been killed off, right. you know, for that so reason. In, in, in West Africa, you've got a very strong movement around challenging international fishing trawlers mm. because you've got these fishing trawlers who are coming and just all across Africa, all of us who have a coastal line, our fish are being stolen on a daily basis. 
and you had a strong movement in West Africa with communities saying, you know, we, we don't have any fish, people were starving, and they decided to take back their waters. And, and that's they where did. the justice came back. That's, that's where, where the justice came back. And then the realization that also in, in all of this, there's climate change, which is affecting the migration right. of fish. So then people are piecing it together on their own because of their own livelihoods. No, I think that that's amazing, though. It's just like, it doesn't hit home until it really starts to affect the way you are, are surviving, the way you are providing for your family. Mm-hmm. Um, you were saying that, you know, especially when in Nigeria where people are, you know, rallying around their fishing resources, have you found that that has been probably the most effective way in order to organize around environmental issues? Because I'm thinking, okay, there are lots of campaigns that are going on. Has, does that work? What works on the continent? Because, you know, there are campaigns for everything. Mm. You know, there a lot, a lot of these international environmental organizations have campaigns left mm. and right. You know, there's yeah. rhino campaigns, yeah. there's everything. But how effective is that on the continent? Some are effective. Um, Somewhat effective. Some are effective. Some are effective. Okay. So depending on the governments and the states in which this is happening, mm-hmm. right? So for example, um, if I look at West Africa and I look at um, Sierra, you know, so, so, so that so I'm trying to think of the countries there along that coastal line that has the issues with fish. It has worked because they've challenged government. Okay. They've pushed out the international trawlers, and this is with people power, and they've changed legislation. Wow. So that has worked. And it has, there are, so there are those kind of positives. Mm. In Nigeria, I feel really sad that that land is dead. Shell's never going to be able to rehabilitate that land and they don't and they care, <laughs> right? So, but it's an ongoing thing because now they're watching other industries coming in and saying, we will not have this again, you know? So it does create that awareness. Um, with Kenya, I think it's a little bit more difficult because you've had smaller communities who were nomad communities or like communities living in, in, in very drought-stricken areas who've just, who've just moved. They've it's, just left. It's just, they've just left. But also, we're dealing with countries that are not very... They're democratic. They might have elections. But in terms of civil society space, it's, it's very controlled. Right. Okay. right? So that's a difficulty. And so what activists have to do sometimes is w- depending on where they are. So in South Africa, we can go and stand out with a banner and say all these things. There are issues, but if you take a country like Ethiopia, for example, people are very scared of challenging the right. government. They would be, they would disappear, or they would end up in jail. So they would work within the system, mm-hmm. and that is much, much harder. I'm wondering, is there more destruction that's happening on the African continent due to climate change versus the, other areas across the globe? I think that Africa would be hardest hit. But it's not because the impacts are worse. It's just that we are less able to respond to the impacts. Okay. So, for example, Germany can have a flood, Mm. but then they recover within a month. Right. We have a flood. It takes us a year to recover from that. Bangladesh has a flood. It takes them five years to recover from that. So it's about resilience of, and, and I think developing countries have a harder ability to 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 withstand the impacts of climate change we also basic you know the basic science is that because of just basic global temperatures and if we look at africa we have a much warmer temperature anyway with climate change 
if the rest of the world is looking at a 1.5 or 2 degree increase, mm -hmm. in Africa we're looking at a maybe 2 to 4 degree increase just because of where we placed. And so then it becomes even harder to deal with that. And, and what do you, and based on that alone, you know, have there been some trends that you're seeing across the African continent to then protect the environment even more? I mean, yes, you're getting more, more citizens, more of the population involved in it, but are there other trends, say, like legislation that's being incorporated that you're noticing is trending across the African continent. I don't know if it's like a, a blanket statement where it's like, yes, we we're interested in the environment and these are the things that we want to protect, but you know, yeah. we're not really going to put that much effort into it. You know, <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm a, I, like you said, I'm an activist. I'm a little bit cynical mm. about those processes and I've been to those processes and I've seen it. A lot of the governments that would be in Africa talking about climate. There are some very, there are some very progressive statements, but the practical issues is like shocking, <laughs> right? So I think Ethiopia might have one of the pro most progressive statements on climate change in their policies or constitution or something. It was, it was something like that, but on the but ground, it's, very, yes, it's yeah. very different. Also, what a lot of governments are doing is saying, uh, we need to develop. So don't tell us to stop building and stop doing coal-fired power stations when we want to get to the level of the U.S. Right. And I want to say, but that is a terrible level to right. get to. Don't do it. Don't that. do it. <laughs> but they're not listening because that's what they want. They want that to be on par. But I think that, yes, we all want to get out of poverty, right? But we don't want to have a model like the U.S. because then we're all going to just fall into poverty. Right. So that's the difficulty. The policies are there. The governments say the right things. There's mm -hmm. pressure on, you know, when you have the United Nations meetings every year, they say the right things. They sign the right declarations. But even South Africa, you know, South Africa in 2009 said, oh, we're going to, this is what we commit to reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Yay, we're the best. And when you look at the fine line, it said fine print, it said um, depending on finance, right? And for us as activists is that South Africa cannot say that. Mm. We are much more developed than most other African countries. We can make a change and we're not doing it. So while I do think what is important is there has been, so you can't help but talk about climate change and, you know, and the impacts on, in Africa. At a high level, the governments are signing these things, they're doing, a, you know, they're saying, okay, we must do things. Mm -hmm. But it then forces things to happen at a local level. So local governments are now talking about climate change. So even if at national government, government saying, yeah, but we want this industry to come because we want to develop, local governments are saying, actually, let's have renewable energy right. instead of this. So they're making those choices, and that's powerful. You know, look, I suppose the most logical step to understanding your role and that of other environmental activists is to educate people around relevant environmental issues, um, particularly those that are the most controversial um, and have a, a long-standing impact, um, nuclear energy being one of them, which is really scary when you start to read about it. <laughs> so, look, are we teaching environmental protection in schools? You know, it's like, what are these next steps to bring up 
mm-hmm. generations where they are are more aware of these things. How do we make it? How do we make mm-hmm. this a normal thing with within schools starting at a very young age? You know, is there a move from environmental protection organizations to say influence younger generations to adopt behaviors that are more protectionist, more kind to yeah. the environment? Yeah. I sadly I think that it's not enough you know like I think that there is basic education and depending on the teachers and depending on their understanding as well it's very superficial there have been like you know it's been fun it's been actually interesting because we've had water restrictions Mm -hmm. so when you have your three year old nephew (laughs) saying something about he has this whole like a nursery rhyme about closing the water while you brush your teeth and all of these things you know and you think okay there's something there to try and put that in but but it there's a bigger picture that we need to get through to young people is that the food water and energy nexus is so important to protect and we can't protect the one without the other and they're so connected in South Africa in particular do you know the land that we have that's our catchment for water Mm. is the land that we have for agriculture is the land that we have for mining so something has Has to to give give. and right now we're losing out to mining all the time Mm. One of our biggest water catchment areas, which is the Waterberg, is going to be mined out for coal. It's heartbreaking. that There are communities, they are fighting it, but they're losing. So the thing is, you're right, there needs to be a stronger environmental awareness and education created in schools that's not pie in the sky, right. high level, but in our environment, this is what's going on. And then I think it makes more sense. Right. Bringing it back to that nexus that you Mm. mentioned. Look, I just want to shift gears a little bit. I mean, I think that's really interesting because I suppose I'm... I, I get tired of certain campaigns around a lot of things. You know, you wonder, you know, are these campaigns working? But, yeah, how do you change the minds of younger generations? And, and whose responsibility is that? And, like, how do you get them to care I think a caring society is something that we build together. Mm. And right now we may feel that younger people don't care, but that's just because of what's prevalent in our political system. And that I I strongly believe. But also, I've met amazing, amazing young people who are not quite leaders, but are involved like everywhere in South Africa, everywhere on the continent, who are interested. I worked for an organization that was on, like, who worked with the groups of people all over and would say, okay, if you want to have an awareness day, here's a toolkit for you. Yeah. People are lap, they want information. They sitting in a community or sitting in a bedroom and having their friends and like, okay, we now a committee. It is inspiring beyond belief. So it is happening. And I I don't think, I think what I'm worried about is that there is this awareness, there is this, we need to keep it going. The momentum needs to keep going and we need to start questioning the system because otherwise we're going to be like hamsters Mm -hmm. on a treadmill or whatever. But we need to say, listen, we can't do this like this anymore. We have to change. And I really do think that there are some young, amazing people out there doing it and that I want to learn from. Right. 
So like I said, I just, I had to go back to that a little bit because I, I really needed to understand how young people are trying to get involved. Um, and I'll go back to that later on. Um, but you know, again, to shift gears a little bit, I think women, particularly on the African continent, are, you know, they're working with fewer resources uh, that, that need to be sustained to provide for their families. And in some cases, their, their whole livelihoods are dependent on these resources. Hmm. So would you consider consider environmental protection a feminist in- mm-hmm. issue, a, a, a gender issue? And why, why do you think that's the case? I would definitely think so, okay. um, for a few reasons. If you look at when the stu- lots of the studies that have been done around the vulnerabilities of the impacts of climate change, who are the ones who are most vulnerable? Who are the ones who will be most affected? Who are the ones who can affect the most change? Right. Right. It's women. Right. So it's the women that are coming up. But also, I've been, you know, I did this research recently where when we talk about women and when we talk about climate change and you say, okay, what is the role of women? People Im- immediately go to a rural area. Right. And the reality is that more and more people are, are, are living in urban areas. But So we need to look at how do we connect to those women, the young women, old women. A lot of the women, you know, they, they're heading the households right. and they single parent households. So if you have a flood or a fire, for example, you have to start from scratch. It's on, you know, that's the thing. It's women having to, and they the have burden. less support. Yes. The burden. The burden and they have less support. Right. So that is something, in fact, there is a campaign started where we looking at what are the, we, we've got pilot cities and mm-hmm. we're looking at what are the local government policies on climate change. Okay. How much of the, if, if they say, yes, you know, women are important mm-hmm. in their main thing, document, but in terms of the policies, right. is it coming out? How are, how are they incorporating right. women within this discussion? Right. Is, and they're not. Oh. <laughs> they're not. I looked at the policies, it's not there. Gender issues are not there. And so what we're trying to do then is we're going to be creating some kind of a road that would have them to relook really at what they've been doing in terms of women. So one of the things was pe- women were saying, oh, we managed to get gender issues onto the SADC protocol, right? But the truth of the matter is that then it just lies there. Right. How does it feed down? And so there's not enough analysis done on the impacts, the direct impacts and the burdens that women experience as a result of climate change and then how they can be agents of change because they're powerful forces. Now, can I give you one example? Definitely. So I worked on a research um, around free basic electricity for an organization called Earth Life Africa. Okay. And what we were looking at is the policy says that it will allow for 50 kilowatt hours of free electricity per household. Mm-hmm. And we were arguing as as an organization and that was too little because it's not a household of one or two there's you know probably about we looked we average of four to five per household and what we did was we got a group of women together Mm -hmm. they all were hitting the households from different parts of Gauteng and we we worked 
for six months on education around what is electricity? Mm-hmm. How do you measure your electricity use? What is, and we had them monitor the electricity in their house. Like if you're going to plug in your cell phone, this is what you need to do for how long? Da, 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 da. So they became monitors of electricity use in their houses. And it was funny because part of the thing is they became more aware of how much electricity was being used. But when we finished the report, it was quite clear that 50 kilowatt hours is just it's too little. Just not, yeah, what so we not. proposed, I think in the report we looked at, it might have been 150 or 200 that okay. we were saying per household, I can't remember. And these women then took it and they used it to campaign for, for free uh, electricity that was better than in the policy. They're like, they, this is the data. <laughs> this is, they went and they went, they were confident enough to speak in front of NERSA. Some local municipalities changed it. Some didn't. But it was a powerful thing of women can change their lives. They can really be agents of change if they're given enough of the material and the ammunition. I know that industries are becoming more conscious um, of their environmental impact. Well, some industries, let's put it that way. I'm, see my smiley. I, I, see, I see this look on her face. She's just like... <laughs> so as a result, the expertise around environmental <laughs> science and engineering, it's, it's more in demand um, in some places. And yeah, it's a great opportunity for young people that are interested in playing a role in protecting the environmental, the environment or studying the environment to get other experiences Mm. and opportunities that might not be so obvious in some other sectors you know have you noticed that there's an increase in these opportunities I uh, yes some companies are aware of this um, and are more eco conscious but I'm wondering you know are they creating more opportunities more jobs for people that are interested in the environment studying the environment it's a very difficult one because I find that they are they are using the term sustainability. Mm-hmm. They are using the you know climate change issues. They're looking at corporate sustainable investment and all of those kind of things. My concern, though, is that it's very much about their own bottom line. <laughs> so they will do those things to see how can they better their bottom line or their profit line. So. I haven't seen a, you know, and, and that's the truth. It, it's, it's rare. I mean, I think if we take, I'm not going to name names, but if we take a retailer, for example, that sells foods and clothes and all of that and claims to be a green, you know, very environmentally friendly brand, but then the packaging is all plastic and not only one plastic, but like two plastics, three plastics. And and then you think, okay, wait, something's not right here. But also, they've, they have very stringent rules in terms of what they can and cannot buy from communities. So mm. it becomes a, you know, they, they're still doing big farm monopolies rather than where food growers are now saying we need to move away from that. Right. We need to move to smaller cooperatives, right? And so there are those those things. I mean, I think I'm not going to... I'm not going to dismiss everything that people do. I think it's important that needs to be done, but there needs to be a clear thing that that's great that you're doing that, but don't call yourself green. Right. Um, that's my issue. Is that don't say that you're creating opportunities when right. actually it's kind of, for your, you are creating opportunities, but it's for your own selfish right. kind of So like in a mine, you'll have an environmental officer. Right. But that environmental officer is not looking at the pollution and how it's affecting the 
community next door it's looking at oh we've got a slime dam we need to do whatever we need to do to make sure that it doesn't seep into the water or you know or else hide it away or whatever it's not a it, it's the terms have been used like sustainable development environmental that makes it almost like oh wait it's okay they're fine mm-hmm. but if you dig deeper it's not quite did you think that it was a risk for you to get involved in environmental issues as a woman as a black woman did you was it a risk no you know i grew up as an activist so that fighting spirit was always there i am reminded though because there were times when i didn't just work in south africa where i worked in the continent like i said to you i have i've worked with people in ethiopia where they were like do not speak to me do not say anything to me around protest or march they'll they'll be like they'll put the phone down on you so they're totally paranoid so people are afraid i've i haven't felt that fear i think where i do feel afraid is that people aren't listening and we're doing something wrong mm. in terms of how we're trying to get the message across so i keep trying to reflect and think how do we make our message better like about on the nuclear deal mm. before it got to this point we had been campaigning on it for ages um i went to fukushima you know i was creating awareness around that and people still like oh no Just you're crazy environment completely. yes you're crazy. <laughs> and now it's like oh hello so it it's it's, it takes it's a while it's sometimes it's just what it, you, we need to figure out how to better create awareness and i think we environmental activists are guilty of not doing enough and how do you think yeah it's almost as if you need to be connected with say some other area in order to to shape that message shape that camp that campaign or whatever you're trying to do in order to educate people like i know you are hardcore into the environment but at some stage yeah you're going to have to pass along these messages to educate people and you know while you're reflecting what do you think needs to actually happen who do you think you may need to work with in order to get this message across because you can pick it you can do all kinds yeah. of boycotts yeah. tie yourselves to trees you can do all kinds of things but if people are not getting the message the message what do you practically think needs to happen i think well the, the one thing is to move away from thinking of things in boxes right. or in silos right. so environmentalism is there um social activism is there right. poverty eradication is there it's linked it's all, it's all. and as for as long as we don't see that don't create those linkages we'll be working in our boxes and no one will care but when you create those linkages people get an aha moment mm. and become more passionate about what you're fighting about so you might see yourself as an environmental activist mm-hmm. but someone's fighting poverty right um and you have the same voice right. and that's the strength that's the, yeah that's where the power comes comes from yeah but look Ferial, we're really lucky to have you on Visceral podcast but to wrap up for for young women struggling with their decision to say study within the stem disciplines you know particularly studying around the environment and climate change issues what advice do you have for them to just push through or or, or what can be their starting point how do you how do you get involved as a young black woman in South Africa you know you care about the environment or you live in an area where it's it's flooded many times and you're saying okay enough of this what's your starting point it's 
it's easy. I look back at my years as an activist in the 80s and you need a group of five people to find something that you want to fight with or fight for. It could be, okay, we need to create awareness around a park for kids to play in. Or if, you, if you're in a community that has a lot of kids with asthma, you create a, a group of five people and you say, we're going to have a night where we're talking about what this is going to do to these kids as they're growing up and how do we deal with it. Right. And you call in the experts and you chat. So you start with little groups chatting about it. Younger people, though, there's social media. And you can do so much on social media. Right now, online, you can get toolkits for organizing. You can start an awareness group. You can start a club at your school. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be... You don't, you don't change the world overnight. Right. You do little steps and you find that area that you are passionate about. So that's the other thing. Environmental stuff is very broad. You can look at water, you could look at land, you could look at energy, you could look at air pollution, water pollution. You know, it's a whole range of things. And people are needed in all of that. And if you feel that you have some interest, then exploit, you know, volunteer. There's so many organizations that love having volunteers. Um, when I was working for a particular organization, we had these two young women who needed to just do the thing for the, you know, have the tick for their school, right. that they volunteered somewhere. <laughs> but they've never stopped being interested. Really? So that's, you know, volunteer somewhere, create a group, write. Young people need to write more and read. I don't think we do enough of that. And, and make the linkages. Don't just read about South Africa. Don't just read about Africa. Read about other developing countries that have gone through the same things. Or, you know, like if you go and watch, I'm, I'm not saying this is the case, but if you look at a movie like Avatar. Right, right. Right? It was a really interesting kind of phenomenon. Yes, kind of exactly. Created. Yeah. But if you actually look at what was happening, was that you had these people coming to break down this, this jungle. Now, if you look at some of the struggles that happened in the Amazon around the chopping down of the forest, that's akin, you know, you can create those linkages. You don't have to be heavy and serious all the time. You watch a good movie and you have this discussion. Right. To generate that awareness. To generate anything. the, yes. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, put your, put your opinion out there on Facebook, you know, see where it gets you. You might be linked up with a whole range of people who have crazy ideas. I am appreciative of you coming and speaking with us. Thank you. And I hope it was useful. No, it was incredibly <laughs> useful. And and again, it's for the non-science community. So you need to be able to break that stuff down so that people can understand it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Pleasure. I'd like to thank Ferial for the great interview and for sharing her perspective about our responsibility in reducing further damage to our environment now and in the future. Please check her out on Twitter at Ferial underscore Adam. You can also get access to the show notes for this episode at www.visceralpodcast.co.za. Just click on the episode link and it will direct you to the show notes. You can also access Visceral Podcast through iTunes and Stitcher for more episodes. One more thing. We love to get feedback, so leave us a review on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe to Visceral Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Michelle Roseborough, and this is Visceral Podcast. Visceral Podcast.